Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to Ladies Who London podcast. I'm Emily Dell. And I'm Alex Lacey. And we're qualified London Blue Badge tourist guides. Each week we bring to you some of the best bits of London. We talk about our favourite, 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 favourite. We just go with favourite. <laughs> we do. This is going really well so far. Uh, we talk about our favourite people, places and events with a bit of information, a lot of laughs and a whole lot of fun. We can be found on Instagram at Ladies Who London Podcast and on our websites, guideemily.com and alexlacy.com for information about our upcoming virtual tours, as well as what the Blue Badge Guiding Qualification is all about. Hello, Alex. Hello, Em. How are you doing? I'm okay, my love. How are you? Really well. I mean, quite chilly. It's, it's cold out there. We had snow yesterday. We did. Did you get out and do a snow angel? No, because uh, it snowed and then 15 minutes later it rained and it all left. <laughs> so it, it was pretty it. pathetic, wasn't it? It was all yes. rubbish. Yeah, rubbish. but nice all the same. Yeah, I mean, I love a bit of snow. Uh, sorry. I'm... <laughs> yes, you've got something on your shoulder and it's yeah, crawling. I'm... Well, in, in eyes in, and a tongue. In, in honour of the fact that we have uh, Darwin as our topic this week, I've decided to do the entire thing with a lizard on my shoulder, and he's being a bit of a pain. And this isn't like a toy lizard; this is an no. actual beating heart lizard. Fraggle. Anyone who watches Global Tea Break will know Fraggle, um, but he's just being a bit of a pain at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I actually fed him a blueberry once, didn't I? You did, you did, mm. and he uh, he ate it as well, which is he even did. More I know. We're friends for life. What have you been up to this week, then? Anything? Um, fun? Oh gosh, anything fun? Anything interesting? I did uh, well I've just been putting together my dark side of London virtual tour which I which I did um so I've been having lots of terrible dreams um lots of nightmares of gruesome different things about London so that's been quite (laughs) (laughs) but yeah what about you anything interesting this week well I've I've run a couple of my uh my Tudor puzzle boxes which have gone really well so I'm thrilled about that um and then just yeah kind of carrying on with with everything as it is really Mm, lovely now before we get to our guest this week we do have to figure out who won podcast pedestal of last week can you remind everybody what we were chatting about yes so the wheel landed in clerkenwell and you decided to talk about a fantastic woman called amelia edwards who um grew up in london and ended up studying um all things egypt and she was just such a powerhouse of a woman wasn't she amazing yeah Um, so we had a couple of picks of podcast pedestal i personally went for the ank yeah um, which is an Egyptian symbol, which was on her tomb. And you went for... Kind of loop on the top, doesn't it? And, um, so did you get a chance to have a look at uh, the, the ankh on the tomb, see how big it I is? I did, and it's absolutely gigantic. Um, I was pretty pleased with my choice, actually, because, yes, not only was it the crux of the story, but it was the biggest ankh I've ever seen. <laughs> really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And well, I went for the uh, the storm, which is the reason that they upped sticks and went to Egypt in the first place. So, frankly, that's the most important bit of the entire story. You know, the Yanks lies and all that, but it's about the storm. It's about the storm. Oh, get over it and give me the score. 
Okay, so how do you think you've done? Do you reckon you uh, you picked correctly this week? Well, actually, on my um, Instagram poll, um, it was even Stevens. Oh, dead heat, dead, dead heat. heat. And can you so, what the um, what the score is now? What are we on? Uh, we're on seven all. Are we? Yes. Oh, I thought I was winning. Oh no, I don't think you are. Oh yeah, no, I think you're right. I think. Oh we're no, in. maybe you are actually. She tries to cheat. She wants to win. Aaron. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to look. Frankly, I'm pretty sure we are seven all. We are seven all. We are seven all. Oh, we are seven all. Fantastic. Good stuff. <laughs> um, okay, so we are seven all, and you are convinced that you're going to just basically keep winning and, and take it all the way, aren't you? Um, it was very, very tight this week. Very tight indeed. Just a couple of votes in it. One vote. One um, option has forty-seven votes, and one has fifty-five votes. <sighs> so there is literally eight votes in it uh, and it goes to drumroll please storm it goes to me oh for heaven's sake it was my downfall for not putting a picture up on instagram at the grave yep. if you had done that you might have swung it babe. oh my goodness me well to be honest i think your pick was pretty good and it was a pretty important part of the story so i will let you have that fabulous so we're eight seven eight seven fantastic <laughs> i mean last week you really let yourself down with dog poo being your choice but didn't know i won that one didn't i no oh no, no. i didn't win animal dung oh no. yes gosh no i really do have to pick more intellectually i can't even say the word <laughs> intelligently well uh you probably got loads of choices this week because um this week it was your pick wasn't it where did the wheel land uh the wheel of destiny landed over in bloomsbury yeah so what have you gone for uh, we've gone for Charles. I was about to say Charles Dickens. Then we've gone for Charles Darwin. <laughs> we have gone for Charles Darwin. And on that note, we have uh, a guest this week. Yay! Our second we guest. Do. Would you like to introduce your guest, Emily? Yes, I would like to introduce Dr. Aaron Hunter. Woo! <laughs> Welcome, Aaron. Otherwise Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on. We're thrilled that you're here to talk all things Darwin. Um, so who are you? What do you do? Why are you Me? here? Well, I, most importantly, I'm a blue badge guide. Yay! As well. But one with a difference, because I'm also a scientist. He's better than well. the rest of us, No, that's certainly not true. <laughs> and, um, and I'm a scientist at the University of Cambridge, which is where, of course, Darwin graduated from. Mm. As we we will be we will discover very soon. Indeed. So we called you and, we called you Dino Doc because you are a paleontologist, aren't you? I'm a paleontologist, um, and so I spend my life either guiding or pointing at fossils or <laughs> studying fossils, and very occasionally putting on my very Australian-looking hat and going out into the desert or the rainforests to find fossils. And, and, point and don't say I'm Indiana Jones, okay? <laughs> wouldn't dare, wouldn't dare. And I did say to Alex a couple of weeks ago that when I first met you, um, you had a bone in your bag. <laughs> do you remember this? I did. Or do you That's always have true. a bone in your bag? <laughs> well, I always have a fossil somewhere. I hidden away. <laughs> Alex, are you all right? No, no, no. Sorry. God, I got me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how are you going to get away with that <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got away with much worse <laughs> oh. and, and um, did you walk up to me and say was that a fossil in a bag or just pleased to see me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um no do you remember do you remember what it was I think it was a it was a horse bone from the uh, from the River Thames. I think someone had brought <laughs> it along to get ID'd, but it was very young for me. It was only a few thousand years ago. Hmm? Sorry, it wasn't even a dinosaur then. No, no, it was very young, only a few thousand years, a maybe only bone. about. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, it was a horse mandible. Wow. Um, yes, um, but but my my fossils were much older. <laughs> quite, quite the humble brag there. <laughs> so um. Darwin, why uh, why Darwin then, Emily? What's what are we gonna? What, how is he linked to Bloomsbury? What's the kind of uh, what's the so? Well, he has quite a few connections in London, which we'll find out through our little chat today. Um, but he lived in Bloomsbury. He lived with his wife Emma and their children. Um, he didn't die in London. Uh, well, I say he didn't die in London, where he actually lived after Bloomsbury is now actually part of London. Um, 
But yes, that's why. Me and Aaron, we are kind of tag teaming the history of Charles Darwin. And I'm going to be starting by telling you a little bit about his upbringing. Um, and then I'll be passing it over to our doctor, who's going to tell us about his exciting voyage and all of his discoveries. I'm going to talk about his connections in London and eventually where he ended up. Are you OK with that, Dr. Aaron Hunter? It sounds fantastic to me. Excellent. Um, so it's too late to back out now. <laughs> You've got no choice. Um, so I'm going to start with a little bit of his, his upbringing. So Charles Darwin, he was born uh, February 12th, 1809 in Shrewsbury, which is in Shropshire, England. And he was the second son of a doctor, a man called Robert Warren or Waring. All right. Um, so he's born into the 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 scientific thing already then like he goes straight in there it's not yeah, completely and actually um his grandfather was erasmus darwin who um was a man who came up with something that ended up being at the bedlam hospital which was a hospital that you would go to if you were suffering from mental anguish and his grandfather came up with something called the uh, the rotational chair oh, which is where patients were strapped into a chair and they were span around violently with the hope that the 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 spinning sensation would shake them free of their trauma what yeah i mean it would shake them free of their lunch i don't know about anything else oh god they would black out they would be horrifically ill as you can imagine so his grandfather and father you know they're very kind of um uh, connected to science and medicine, connected to inventions. And at this point as well, when Charles Darwin is born, his father is, I think, about 42, 43. So he is a highly paid, well-established doctor, which means their home is a very good home. There's there's a lot of money. It's a very, very secure upbringing. Got what they need, basically. Mm, exactly. I've got all what they need. Um, his mother... Charles Darwin's mother was Susanna Wedgwood, um, the daughter of the industrialist, the pottery industrialist, uh, Josiah Wedgwood. Goodness. So, you know, illustrious uh, um, upbringing. Yeah. Illustrious family and all that kind of thing. Amazing. Yeah, completely. Um, sadly, his mother died when he was just eight years old. So um, from things that he'd written down, he said that he couldn't really remember too much about his mother um, but he was cared for by his three older sisters um, and this was of course in their home in Shrewsbury uh, a home called the Mount which was built by his father in the year 1800. Oh, wow that's nice. Mm, yeah and I think it actually you can visit it um, I don't know if you know anything about this Aaron I think you can visit it through appointment only it's not actually opened as a, a fully, you know, rounded museum. Is it still, um, do people still live in it? Is it still a, a home? I, that, you know, I feel like it's kind of, um, it's part of national heritage, but not something right. that is open all the time. I don't know. Do you know, Aaron? I, I gather you need a special appointment to go and see okay. it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, one to put on the list, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, now, because his father was just so busy and he had so many clients, sometimes actually Charles would go with him and, you know, kind of help him treat patients. Not, you know, anything severe, but, you know, if it was kind of putting a bandage on someone, then Charles was there witnessing this. But a lot of the time his father was very, very busy. So Charles would spend time going on huge walks where he would explore nature. Ah, where, sounding uh, familiar, isn't it? Yeah, where he would start to collect anything that he found quite interesting. Like um, thousand-year-old horse mandibles and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A couple of horse bones. Um, and as well, he'd like to get out because after his mother died, uh, apparently the house was quite a a gloomy um had quite a gloomy atmosphere his dad suffered quite a lot with depression later on in life um now eventually his father did put him um into medical school he studied medicine and science at edinburgh university which is where his dad and also his granddad um also were educated um and he wasn't hugely into it there are a lot of subjects that you know he'd rather not 
not bother with. And when it came to biology and chemistry, a lot of the things that he was really interested in were kind of subjects that were kind of I don't know, laughed at, I guess. Oh, and I he, that. what kind of things? Well, if you wanted to kind of um, do anything with uh, looking at specimens and kind of looking at bones and I don't know, I guess questioning, which is something that he would have done when he was at school and when he was at Edinburgh, questioned where things would come from. Hmm. And he was always seen kind of making little potions and was nicknamed gas at some point. Brilliant. I think it's because of the potions and not because of uh, (laughs) the flatulence problem that he had. Is when he was at university in Edinburgh, there was a man uh, called John Edmonston who uh, tutored him. Uh, Do you know this story? I did do it on Tea Break a while ago when I was looking at some of some of the black history in in London. And John Edmonston was um, a freed slave and had come over to the UK and he took up taxidermy and he taught Darwin taxidermy and told him all about the kind of flora and fauna in the amazing kind of Caribbean area that he, that he'd been from, he'd come from as a slave, um, and was quite instrumental in in that formation. So I love these little bits that are coming in of you know his walks and then his this chap. Um, yeah, so you know all those different things of kind of coming in to make Darwin give him these interests and everything that he uh, you know he wants to know about. I think I love that. Yeah, completely. And I think he learned how to stuff birds with him as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, again, another another member of, of British history, um, a person of colour who is generally overlooked, but also incredibly important. So uh, always mm. worth mentioning him. And I guess because he was a freed American slave, you know, you'd like to think that Charles Darwin kind of really kind of questioned his life and wanted to find out about his personal journey. I'd like to think so, yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if there's any evidence for him, you know, thinking along those lines. No idea, but it, it's mm. lovely that that was at least a, you know, an influence in his life. Yeah, completely. Um, and it was a, when it was during his time when he was in Edinburgh that he certainly would have heard about this idea of evolution. Um, it certainly wouldn't have been how it ends up being, you know, later on in his life and the knowledge that he uh, gains. But it was starting to seem clear that some, um, some that, uh, some living beings were related. Uh, sorry, that doesn't make sense at all. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> it, <related. laughs> um, it was starting to seem clear to some that all living beings were related, but as of yet, it was difficult to say how they were related. Yeah. Um, but the the conversation of evolution started to you know uh, be spoke about. That's for sure. Um, now at this point. Uh, as you've mentioned he was introduced to John Edmundstone um, and he started being introduced to all sorts of people a man called Robert Edmund Grant for instance he was a radical evolutionalist oh, I love um, a radical, uh, radical evolutionist uh, well he was an expert on sponges <laughs> Ooh. I've got a friend an expert on sponges <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> do you? Oh. So, yes, so um, at this point, he's starting to look at uh, sponges, he's starting to look at oysters, he's starting to look at uh, the seabed and be introduced to people that have the same excitement about um, biology and about nature that he has. Um, Now, at this point, his father is a little bit worried about Charles's feelings towards religion. So he thinks it's the best thing to put him into Christ College in Cambridge. Because he was brought up religious, wasn't he? This is what I think a lot of people don't understand is he was brought up in a religious family. So quite a bit of conflict going on. I don't think he ever completely cut ties with the idea that there was a God. I think that was still there at the back of his mind, even after all of his studies. Um, but yeah, so he went to Christ College, Cambridge. And if you go there, there's a wonderful memorial to him. You go to the entrance and I think it's just on the right hand side. And you see this kind of, um, uh, it's all, it almost looks like um, uh, a round door with a, a face of his coming out of the wall. It's, oh, nice. Yeah, it's really lovely. Um, So he went there in 1828 and unlike in Edinburgh, he was required to sign the 39 articles, a statement of faith in the Anglican creed. So his father, I guess, in the hopes that... He's pushing um, that agenda, isn't he? 
yeah absolutely um and it was at cambridge where he studied um all sorts of things he studied greek he studied latin um he again got to meet some fantastic people one of which was a reverend called adam sedgwick who took darwin to wales on this geological field trip the country not the animal i would assume yes <laughs> to ride a whale in 1831 <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and there was a lot of a lot of subjects that he was learning that he wasn't really into. And he was kind of, you know, probably thinking that he wasn't going to do very well in terms of his exams. But when it came to the end of his degree, he was 10th out of 178 students. Hey, it's not bad. Yeah. So just, you know, did Especially so, so well. No? Yeah. Um, and it's at this point when he comes to the end of his studies in Cambridge, when there is an opportunity that starts to come up where he could go to uh, go on a voyage. Ah. And this is where I'm going to be passing over to the doctor who's going to be telling us a little bit about Darwin's voyage. Well, I mean, that voyage itself was uh, a breakthrough for Darwin because he was by this time now someone very interested in geology. And some people like me regard him really as being quite a special scientist because he lived at that time when he'd done um, a whole series of, you know, studies, uh, particularly in biology, but also in geology. And so the uh, ca captain or Admiral Robert Fitzroy, rather, the captain of the ship, uh, was looking for a gentleman scientist and he was he's not just a scientist it's a gentleman scientist you know? <laughs> a gentleman scientist and, and we science. could say you have a top we, hat. I mean you know <laughs> you have to have a top you have to have a hat in general to be a gentleman scientist I think <laughs> um, and and you have to be a little bit of at leisure you want to sort of read and I think that's what Darwin was about he was enjoying the science he was doing I think Cambridge allowed him although he was doing um, the sort of natural philosophy he was able to read up on various different subjects and in fact interesting enough the course he did still exists I mean he um, it's still natural sciences allows the students to choose which part of that spectrum they want to be on do they want to be more geology or they want to be more biology it's I imagine it's day. changed a bit since he did it thanks to mm -hmm. it's changed in terms of the fact there's a few different things here <laughs> but it still has that lovely idea of choice and so uh Admiral Robert Fitzroy um, approaches him and says, you know, you'd like to come on this voyage to join me because these voyages were going out to look at the far reaches of the world and, and look at some really amazing places that were hardly touched by human contact. But crucially, do you have a top hat? That I think you'd have a special ship yeah, that, hat. <laughs> that, that, would be, that would be the first question you'd ask. Would you like to come? Have you got a top hat? <clears throat> you're in that's you know I mean personally I never go anywhere in the field without a hat absolutely if I'm wearing a hat now I know you can't see it but I'm wearing one now I'm wearing my lovely beautiful Australian hat um I love it very much with still the sweat on the side of it I'm sorry um but but then so actually this was the second voyage of the Beagle the HMS Beagle so it had been around the world before but this was the one that went from it led, departed on the 27th of December 1831 and it would now go down the Atlantic to some places today that would be familiar, but they were still being charted, still being discovered. So he would go down to the coast of South America, then round to the Galapagos Islands, onto Tahiti, then to New Zealand and Australia, uh, and then he would again come back to the United Kingdom. It's not a bad uh, a bad trip, is it? I mean, I think it was. I think I would call it an enormously fantastic jolly. Yeah, absolutely, a science right? jolly. I think it would be great. And so uh, what I'm going to do, actually, I'm going to summarise some of the key points from the sort of science perspective, uh, the discoveries that he came into contact with, because the key thing about Darwin was when he left, one of his mentors, which was the professor of geology at King's College London, the University of London, Charles Lyell, had already created a book that was the core of geology. It was actually called the Principles of Geology and it's the first geology textbook. And in fact, even now, if you have a physical geology textbook, it, you could say that's like a descendant of that book. And he had that book on his voyage. And as, as Emily already mentioned, he'd already been in the field with um, Sedgwick 
and a big right. giant of paleontology, of the foundations of paleontology. So he had all this loaded into his brain and off he goes uh, into the hat. sunset with his top hat, into the sunset. And his the stop I'm gonna talk about first of all is when he landed in Patagonia where the Argentinian cowboys, Gauchos, I think they call them. Gauchos, yeah. Gauchos. Uh, they they um, they introduced him to a very interesting fossil site on the coast of Patagonia, where he saw a series of strata or rock layers full of seashells, and in that he saw a series of strange-looking animals, and they were giant mammals. And one of them, some of them were armadillos, giant armadillos, but the most important one was a thing we call megalotherium or the giant sloth, which you can actually see in London. It's on display at yes. the Natural History Museum and, it's a and, a, and a model of it in Crystal Palace Park, which hey. for those of you who know me, I have a slight obsession to love of <laughs> Crystal Palace Park and the animals models that were within it because they're dinosaurs although some of them are factually incorrect now aren't they <laughs> they are factually incorrect but Modern i still reason. love them with a passion very good uh, and because they're, it's the world's first Jurassic park in a park in southeast london amazing i think it's great and they're um, them, i think aren't they haven't they got grade one or two listed status they are grade one listed grade and they're under it. threat um and and so we it's one of those things that giving money to the friends of crystal palace dinosaurs is a good thing it's a charity well they're under threat because they are very rare so you know. they are very rare and they're very yes and they're, they're, they're some of them are concrete so they have concrete cancer unfortunately okay. so conservation is needed um so that's a that was a fantastic discovery and a lot of those bones would then travel around the world a lot what we think about this the beagle um sort of expedition was that these bones are often then packed up and then taken back to uh, to Britain and also France. So some ended up with the, with the famous paleontologist Georges Cuvier, who would then study these amazing mammals. But did they go back on the Beagle or did they have them shipped back separately? Or? I think it was a mixture. I think it was a mixture because they went particularly to different scientists. Often it's still to this case this day where with scientists, particularly paleontologists like me, that uh, often I don't have to go to the place sometimes to get the fossils, they literally come to me in a parcel uh, because uh, you often have your speciality and you're the person they want him to go to. So this is what happened even at that time in the 1830s. And then he then went to the Falkland Islands. And this was interesting because the Falkland Islands had just been resettled by the present inhabitants, the Falkland Islanders, the British that were living there. Um, and he actually went to explore a, um, a, a small area north of not near Sydney, this sort of Port Stanley, the capital area. And it was called Barclay Sound. And it was there that he found a series of fossils. And there were very ancient fossils. In fact, one of them was a bug like animal we call a trilobite. Mm. Is this the first instance of these trilobites being found? Actually, no, it isn't because Adam Sedgwick, his as it went, his mentor, had actually found them in Wales, oh. and so here was Darwin landing in this distant land of the Falkland Islands. It's beautiful. It's an amazing place to go. It's a beautiful place, and he actually looked at it and realised that they didn't just occur in Wales; they actually occurred also in other parts of the world. So it's quite a breakthrough finding yeah. these fossils. Definitely. Um, and this locality is also quite deep quite quite um, close to my heart um, because I'm actually studying this locality now in the Falkland um, Islands. Falklands, are so, you? Yes, so I studied the paper, I actually published a paper on a starfish that was found from the same locality a few years ago, uh, which I then named after Darwin. I called it Darwin Aster, the star <gasps> of Darwin. You got to name it? Yes, I got to name it the Darwin Star because after him, shameless but true. Wow. And I named the species name after a lady called Colleen Biggs because she found it. Oh, so this God. woman, this lovely lady, was so shocked one day when she opened up the Penguin News, the local newspaper. Yes, of I have the a Falkland copy Islands, somewhere around here actually. And to discover that her name, her species name, her name had been immortalized in a fossil <gasps> along with Charles Darwin. I think she was quite happy. How wow. And Gosh. so I want to get down, back down there again. I want to do, we, we have more research to do. Have you on, been? I haven't, because again, it's one of those cases where someone else went to the locality. Oh. I got the fossil, just like perhaps Darwin's mentors would have done mm -hmm. as he was going. Mm -hmm. But now 
many of my colleagues are so dead keen to go down. So we are going to get some money together and go down there as an expedition. So it should be exciting. So that's it. So he, he then departs um, the Falkland Islands and we had to wait, as I said, many hundreds, a hundred years later or more for some of these fossils to finally be described by the scientists. But now he heads on to probably, well, first of all, through Terra, Terra de Fuego. He goes through there and he meets some very ancient looking humans, humans that have not really come into contact with the outside world but then, well they're actually only 35 come on <laughs> <laughs> how old are these people you look old. ancient what? <laughs> but then i mean that must have been a shock because these people were you know that they were not touched by civilization so that gave him some of his ideas about the origin of man but then he goes through to the other side of south america he goes up the coast of chile and arrives in the galapagos islands and um. that is the place which we often see as that kind of birthplace of some of the ideas of evolution. Mm. So um, he, it's there that he comes into contact with the tortoises and he looks at those and they realize that they look a little bit different on each island. Mm. And then uh, he then sees the same with the finches. So he sees the finches have different beaks depending on which island they're on. And the locals are telling him this. But what people don't realize is actually it's the mockingbirds where he first sees his big work. It's not the finches. That comes a little bit later. It's actually the mockingbirds he actually collects. Mm. And so he collects a few of those and he takes them back um, to um, back with him on the beagle. What so is it they about are the pretty mockingbirds that he notices? What, what's kind of what's piqued his interest? It's, it's similar um, to the finches. He, what he notices is that he notices that, again, each animal looks a little bit different on each island. Yeah. And so he realizes. So in biology, we have, and this is a big word coming up, okay, we have this thing called allopatric speciation. Whoa. Allo meaning different, Patrick, nothing to do with St. Patrick, okay? <laughs> Patrick speciation. Um, and, and, um, and there are many forms of this speciation. Um, and this is where what happens is that an animal will, will evolve in one spot. And then that perhaps that mockingbird will then be blown off course and stuck on another island. Wow. And when it's there, there might be a different plant on that island. So the animal has to, over time, evolve mm. to adapt to eat that bush or that plant otherwise it's going to die right and in mm. fact the actual offspring of that bird will probably end up being by random mutation i got the word mutation into there well done well one one of them will probably be the one that is most adapted to eating that bush and that's the one that's going to survive and all the others are going to die so that's how we have this idea of survival of the fittest because mm -hmm. it's the one that adapts to be able to eat that bush yeah. and so over several millions of years you end up with a mockingbird that's perfectly adapted to eating that bush which is then can't then interbreed with the one on the other island yeah and that is what he saw and that was his moment. But then he writes it all down in his notebooks, which are still kept. He, he was very good at his notebooks. They were beautiful. Uh, they're kept in the University of Cambridge Library and also in the Natural History Museum Library. I have seen yeah. them. They're amazing. Wow. Uh, and then he goes then back via Australia and Tahiti. They do bring some turtles or tortoises with them so they can have some lunch because they were quite tasty. Yes, I was going to uh, say, as, they, yeah, they used to make soup and things, didn't they? It was. Uh... Uh, well, it's, it's the best turtle soup ever. Look at the bowl. <laughs> Gosh. I mean, right? <laughs> I mean, you've got a ready-made bowl there. Um, he was a bit of a hunter, wasn't he? He did, but I think everyone were there um, in that they they were hunters. They mm. they 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 obviously had no guilt of going out and killing these animals mm. uh, for food because they were surviving. This was still yeah. the edge of the world. Yeah, they didn't have Tesco's. No, no, they did not have Tesco's. Sorry, I don't know why I thought they I did. I look forward to the special uh, two-for-one deal on the, on the tortoises, though, in Tesco. Okay, so. Mildew so on the, the tortoise, three pounds. But he's got, he's got to do We've talked about Tahiti in the past, haven't we? Because we talked about mm. the mutiny on the bounty. Mm. So clearly Darwin is uh, is much better place to not. Yeah, to was there not, the not any breadfruit there? On the, uh, 
Any on the breadfruit to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to stop him from killing all the tortoises. So what happens next? Well, Darwin ends up then going via New Zealand, and it's there that he comes into contact with some of these beautiful plants, animals that perhaps people like Sir Joseph Banks and Captain Cook would have seen and documented and published a few <coughs> decades earlier. Uh, and then he's on his way back to Britain, where I, where Emily. So what happens when he gets back to London? What happens? Well, he's been away for five years. Lots happened in five years. That, that is a pretty just heard. Rude, isn't it? <laughs> he's more driven. He's a certified naturalist. Um, and what he does is he comes straight back to the family home. So his family is still living in the home in Shrewsbury. And he goes straight up to his bedroom and he goes to sleep. And then in the morning, his family are downstairs having breakfast in the kitchen. And he suddenly turns up and they're like, oh, my goodness me, Charles, it's so lovely to see you. Did he not tell them he was home? That's so weird. Well, I guess it was just the surprise, really. I mean, if he's been away for five years and had the opportunity to see so many incredible things, as Aaron was just telling us. Um, I'd be storming through that door with a honey I'm home kind of thing well maybe he might have arrived at like 2am in the morning so they're already asleep Whatever. Um, (laughs) but anyway um, so he's back in London and he's getting ready to publish a book um, which he was working with Fitzroy on Fitzroy who we heard about um, from Aaron Um, and I should say as well that whilst they were away people um, from the Geological Society were receiving letters and were receiving bits of information about the voyage and they were reading out letters and and, and different pieces in Somerset House, which is where a lot of meetings would take place for the Geological Society in the 1830s. Um, Somerset House, if you don't know it, it's right along the River Thames. It's um, just along the road called the Strand. It's a beautiful building. Gorgeous, really lovely. Yeah. Um, and I think this is, uh, at this point, Darwin is is starting to kind of really tell people about his um, different discoveries and this, this feeling of um, what he's suddenly, you know, stumbling onto, which is evolution and, and the theory behind that. Um, and of course, at the time, in the 1830s, a lot of people are heavily religious. I mean, so much more than they are today. And hearing a theory which goes completely against what they hold in their heart, they instantly dismiss it. And a lot of people call Charles Darwin, you know, this, that and the other. He can't have made too many friends with that, can he? No. Um, And actually, at some point, he was kind of hoping that although he enjoyed studying it that somebody else would push it forward and write a book and realize that gosh you know I've got to do it I don't think anyone else is going to oh god I'm gonna have to do it here I'm probably very aware that he's gonna get these reactions but but has to do it um and at this point um he starts to think do you know what I probably should get myself a bit of a wife Um, just a bit of a wife (laughs) a little bit of a wife a shoulder perhaps (laughs) um and he was um he was quite famous for writing lists he was always writing lists and he even wrote a list about the pros and cons of taking a wife oh what an old romantic i know um and he he found a woman within his family a whole woman (laughs) this guy sounds awfully familiar to my (laughs) colleagues uh well he married his cousin is that familiar yes all right (laughs) great just checking we're on the same page worrying um so he marries emma wedgwood and he talks to emma about you know his his feelings towards evolution and the idea of wait so his mum was a wedgwood and his wife is a wedgwood yes so he was talking about his feelings about evolution but not his feelings towards her well i'm sure that came up but (laughs) i don't think that's important right now aaron (laughs) that's that's what you want from a man on a first day isn't it let me tell you about evolution (laughs) (laughs) um and her reaction made him think because you know he was obviously married to her so he thought right i'm just gonna 
to tell her everything that's in my mind and she was just shocked and kind of like really taken back so I think he thought right okay I kind of need to sugarcoat it for people I think if I'm gonna tell people about about what I found out um anyway this is where they get a house in Bloomsbury this is why we're talking about Darwin in the first place because they live at 12 Upper Gower Street in Bloomsbury and this is um you know very central and in the 1830s it's quite an industrial place to be in london you know you don't have too much greenery around that's for sure um they have a son and soon after he is born this is where darwin suddenly becomes incredibly ill um he's nauseous he's weak he's suffering from pain um he can't sleep doctors including his father cannot find any concrete evidence of what's wrong with him and how to treat him um so he was left to kind of suffer quite a lot on his own um thankfully i have to say he he did live for for quite some years after Um, they know what it was no i don't think so do do you know aaron uh, yes. So a few oh. years ago, actually, uh, I actually I was had the great pleasure of having a lecture about Darwin's illness at a conference. Oh, excellent. and he had a defect of that tiny little thing that's inside your cell called the mitochondria, mm. uh, and it co- it was a genetic disorder. So oh. it's a pure genetic disorder that caused him to have these, uh, I believe, kind of was it stomach issues um and in fact the only thing i remember uh, from that lecture apart from it was a very good lecture was apparently one of the products of um this illness was that he had extremely audible flatulence fantastic so maybe that's why he was called gas maybe yeah you were onto something <laughs> oh i thought it was because of you know all the chemical mixing but uh but it was because Emma Wedgwood was a close relative. So it was a, a, a dis- disorder. So there's a great irony oh. here. The man who championed evolution, yeah. which by definition means you don't marry a cousin. <laughs> ideally not. Actually married his cousin, married a cousin. Gosh, and yes. that, so being that, it was actually a genetic disorder. Mm. Wow, gosh. Um, well, at, at this point, because as I say, you know, London's not exactly the most pleasant place to be, especially if you're in central London in the 1830s and you're not feeling very well. So yeah. this is where they start to look towards uh, a village um, in Kent. And I'm now going to pass over to Aaron, who's going to tell us about their time in Downhouse. Well, yes. So what happens is that Darwin decides to move out to the countryside. He moves there finally in 1842 to what today is Greater London, but there was deepest, darkest Kent. And in fact, they discussed moving out of London for quite some time and they eventually settled on this this house, which they weren't very impressed by, first of all. But it's there that Darwin builds a family life down there. Um, he is able to hide away and become a proper gentleman scientist because he has a very rich family. The Wedgwoods have a bit of dosh. Yeah, they've got cash. Uh, they? They've got cash, which means that he can now uh, adapt his house into a natural laboratory and a study in which he can start to work on his particular projects. So what does he do? You'd imagine him to go down to Down House to set up his study, and then you expect him to uh, start publishing his book, except he doesn't, because Darwin is very much a proper scientist in that the project is probably the most important one he won't do first. He will do the other one he's obsessed with. Of course. And in fact, he and the thing is, he's already gained a reputation as a geologist. So he's become a fellow of the Geological Society of London, which in 1857 moved from Somerset House to Burlington House Piccadilly, where it is to this day. Very nice. Uh, And it has a special apartments there. And he's already gaining that reputation. So he is able then to come into London at leisure to present his research at the lecture theatre which still exists this day 
in front of people like Charles Lull, who became his friend, very close friend and mentor. Um, and he's able to do papers on such things as the uh, geology of coral reefs, which he collected from South America and the Caribbean, and also bizarrely an entire monograph. So for scientists, a monograph is a book of species names and their descriptions. Um, and he was actually a member of a society called the Pentagraphical Society, which still also exists this day, which is designed just for making these special books. Um, and he does an entire monograph on barnacles. So you think the <laughs> man that has just barnacles. Yeah. So you think, whoa, brilliant. So he's doing that uh, while at the same time he's working on these. And what Emily was saying was so true. It was such a dangerous idea that he wished someone else had done that had had come up with the ideas but he, in fact he realized no one else is going to do this so it's got to be me and in fact no person was more critical than to him than was uh, a certain Charles Lyle the professor at King's College he was very critical of Darwin that's you know, not he was, very nice well critical in a yeah. critical science friend way. okay in a decent way all right then that's and in fact if you go into if you go into downhouse because it's um it's it's actually administered by english heritage it's it's open to the public normally um if you go in there is the old study and it's a lovely study because it has tables with lots of specimens on it and above the fireplace you've actually got the the a series of pictures of people important to him including erasmus darwin and including as well charles lyle he was very close to charles lyle okay. so the next thing is how do we how, how does it change how does darwin move to becoming this famous probably my most famous scientist now in world history i would think so yeah well it happens by another scientist who really prompts him now, I have to think about Darwin was still doing experiments at this time. And if you go to Downhouse and you go to the greenhouse in Downhouse, which is also part of the, the complex there, you will see where Darwin was doing a series of experiments. And one of his experiments was on orchids. He became fascinated with orchids during his time at Cambridge. And so what he decided to do was he was actually looking for a solution about evolution with orchids. And one of the things he realized was that orchids need to be pollinated by insects. But some of those insects need to adapt to pollinate the orchid. So in the case of one particular orchid, it has a very long flower. So you have to have a very long type of insect, a type of moth, to get its proboscis, another big word, to get down into to pollinate it. And this is what we call co-evolution, this idea that two things evolve like a pair over time. And that's exactly how the, the evolution theory came about, natural selection, was really the co-evolution of two amazing men because the other one is Alfred Russell Wallace. And he has a parallel story because what Alfred Russell Wallace is, now to describe him, he grew up on the borders of Wales. He has an outrageously large beard, <laughs> just like Darwin did later on. Um, and what Alfred Russell Wallace would do was that he would then go, first of all, to South America, to the Amazon, to collect a whole series of specimens. And it was there that he was getting some idea of Darwin's ideas. He was starting to realize these ideas that were, and he was coming up with them independently. So what happens to Alfred Russell Wallace? He then comes back on the boat, which then catches fire. What? He survives, but all the treasures go down. Now, oh. in a very gentle, I know, oh, gutted. really gutting. Gutted. And so what happens with Alfred Russell Wallace? Not to be deterred, as a gentleman scientist, he comes back to London, raises more money for his expedition, and decides he's going to go somewhere else. The Malay archipelago, modern-day Malaysia, he goes to the, the present day state of Malaysia called Sarawak. And it's there in a small cabin, he eventually gets there, in a national park called Bako, just outside of the town called Kuching, which is actually Malay for cat. Um, he then starts to look at the islands of, of modern day Indonesia and Malaysia. And it's there that he starts to realize that a new species of what he identifies as a new species evolves very close to another species looks very, very similar. And so he starts to write letters 
and he then sends those letters back to London to Charles Lyle and Charles Lyle then goes down to Down House and says Darwin you've got to start publishing this <laughs> otherwise you're gonna lose this idea so essentially he was kind of almost beaten to the beaten to the um the punch by uh, by this other chap who who was discovering the same things and darwin almost yeah you snooze you lose kind of thing yes so he was he was very close to losing all of the credit um some some scientists even to this day say that darwin and russell alfred russell wallace had come up with a completely different uh ideas between them that they, in fact they had their different ideas of evolution were not quite the same and they actually they needed each other. Um, the thing is what Darwin had been doing in Downhouse was he actually had been writing the manuscript over many, many years. But now from the 1840s, we've now reached 1857, the same year the Jolsock moves to, to um, Burlington House. Also the other one across the archway facing Piccadilly, the Linnaean Society of London, the Biology Society of London, also moves into its apartments. And it's there is where they decide eventually to present the paper. So Darwin decides to present the joint paper of Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace on the 1st of July, 1858, in a room that still exists. It's oh, still wow. there, the desk is still there, the seats are still there, and the paintings with some very outrageous beards are on the wall <laughs> there as well. And it's that moment, the moment that where we reveal the early ideas of evolution. It's interesting that Alfred Russell Wallace doesn't really get many headlines. I mean, for those in the know, mm. of course, you know, he would, but, but you know, Darwin is the, the headline on that. It is, and, and I think I'm, I'm glad to say amongst biology circles that Alfred Russell Wallace was such a gentleman, such an amazing man, because when um, he, he wants to, when Darwin, also a, a, a quite a nice man from the documents we've seen, offers to co-pen the book that he'd been writing for several years, along with those barnacles, um, was, he said, no, Darwin, this is your idea, go for it. Because Alfred was already interested in lots of other things. He actually coined an entire area of Southeast Asia that we call Wallacea, which is the boundary area between Australia and, and Asia. It's where we see animals changing from being Asian to Australian in that respect. Wow. So he'd already done enough work. He's already a mm. giant. And yeah. what's amazing was he was still in Sarawak, probably with malaria at that time when all this was happening. And in wow. fact, when they presented that paper, both Darwin and Wallace weren't there. They were hiding away, one in Southeast Asia, one in Kent. They were being present presented by other scientists such as Huxley, who doesn't have an outrageous beard, but has outrageous sideburns. Fantastic. And in terms of um, who Huxley was presenting to, were there any, um, you know, just ordinary people from the public in there, Aaron, or was it highbrow scientists? They would have been both societies, the Geological Society and the Land Society, which I will reveal my fellow of both of them. They're, one of mm -hmm. them sort of functions as my lovely in-town office because we pay a fee to them. They're still very much today societies where you have to have the degrees and the qualifications to join them. Um, they produce journals. So you can imagine these would have been the, the scientists of the day, many of which would have been people who were from a mixture of society because most scientists weren't full-time. They would have been uh, priests. Uh, they would have been uh, perhaps lecturers and they would have been going to this as a kind of evening society. But what I gather is that um, there was no impact from the paper. I don't think people really realised uh, what this was until it was finally spelt out <laughs> in the publication of the Origins of Species by Natural Selection. Interesting. And um, it did cause a So I think that was... You mentioned Darwin being married to his cousin, but the Queen was married to her cousin as well. And this is quite a big thing. If you kind of go against the monarch, especially, you know, back in that period, that's, that's quite a... Quite a bold statement, isn't it? I, I think I think it certainly was. But London was becoming becoming radical, um, and um, one of the things I really like about the story, by the way, is that Emily was talking about this 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 house uh, in Gower Street, well, where Darwin was living um, before he moved to Kent. That house no, is no longer there. I, I believe it was destroyed in the Blitz or just before, right. um, and it's been replaced by part of the campus 
of University College London. Ah. And it's actually the biology department. And in fact, uh, Professor Steve Jones, who's a professor you might see on TV, a geneticist, liked to say that I give my lectures from Darwin's coal cellar. Amazing. Because wow. the Darwin Lecture Theatre is actually on the site. But until recently, and the only thing you see there today is a bust of Darwin and the blue plaque, the London blue plaque on the outside. Until recently, I say recently, it's probably more like a decade now, <laughs> they used to have the Grant Museum of Zoology. Grant, you mentioned him earlier, mm. Robert Grant, in Edinburgh, moves to London, to a new professorship in University College London. Radical scientist. So the scientists were getting more and more radical. And I think that helped Darwin. So now he was on the crest of the waves, the timing. So when this book was published, November 24th, 1859, in its full title, The Origin of Species, or Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of a Favoured Race and the Struggle for Life, being the full title, it had a lot of other scientists in Oxford and Cambridge and London and new professorships that had started in London, such as UCL, to actually uh, back Darwin. And I think that helped the whole theory move forward and change the world. And modern biology and geology and paleontology is underpinned by all of these theories. Of course, amazing. And he's buried slightly, well, I say controversially, not really anymore, um, in Westminster Abbey, which is something you wouldn't really expect from Darwin, of all people. Um, no, it is a bit peculiar, isn't it? Yeah. But and he wasn't going to be buried there initially. His family originally planned for him to be buried at Down House. I think that's where he wants to be um, buried. But you know, who listens to who listens to people? <laughs> if the government wants something, they're going to have it. Well, exactly. And I think it was it was the decision yeah. of the king, wasn't it? Who said that he wanted to show that science and religion can go hand in hand, which causes, you know, kind of perfect for Darwin, given that he was religious and a scientist as well. Mm. Quite amazing. I think... how, how do you feel, Aaron? As you because of course you're 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 one of us you're a guide when you take people into Westminster Abbey and you get to to walk over and and talk about this man who's so instrumental in your your career and your life like what what's your kind of take on that I, I must admit I do like the science corner in Westminster Abbey and it's interesting <laughs> because it depends on the clients I've got you know if I've got clients who are clearly uh you know it's it's of it to, to me I feel as if they're okay and they're comfortable with the ideas of evolution I usually say, and here's someone you're very surprised to see, it's Charles Darwin. Mm. And you'll say, look on the face, says it all. Yeah. If they're comfortable, they're like, wow, I didn't know he was here. That's amazing, tell me about the story. Mm. But I have had some very, um, some very um, uh, com committed Christians as clients, yeah. lovely people. I mean, I've had great days with them. And, and when you say that, you can see a look in their eyes of uncom uncomfort of what's mm. he doing here, this man. Because I think for us, and I should point out that even in modern day Cambridge today, the curator of the zoology museum is a committed Christian and, and someone that studies evolution. Yeah. And one of my mentors, professors in Cambridge is also someone who is committed Christian and is also a lay preacher in one of the colleges wow. and is also a professor of paleontology. So this idea of coexistence between religion, philosophy and science, which existed in Darwin's day, Darwin was a Christian, it was okay then and it's still okay now it depends yeah. on, on that publicity of it is that you know evolution is not the enemy of society it's just a it's a scientific concept yeah which has a lot of I, evidence i always get quite but, a thrill yeah. in that area because you have darwin you have newton you've got um stephen hawking as well and i i always get quite a thrill talking about those people where they're buried i love it absolutely yes love it. i do it's quite exciting to know that they're just so close to you yeah. all of these incredible people um yeah yeah i love scientist corner yeah well, there we go fab thank you so much thanks Dr. aaron, aaron for coming along and, uh, and having a chat with us about darwin what a treat that was really thank good much. thank you for inviting me on i enjoyed that very much oh it's our pleasure <laughs> it's our pleasure so what we have to do at the end of each one, as you'll know, Aaron, as a dedicated listener to the podcast, um, we have to pick our podcast pedestal uh, options. Podcast pedestal. So, Emily, do you know what you're going to go for? I think so. Um, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot that you could there choose is. in there this is. story. So many important moments in his life that directed him in terms of people, the voyage, um, 
I think I'm probably going to go for the Mockingbird. No, I was going to go for that. <laughs> yes, which means I could potentially win. <laughs> I'm going to go for the Mockingbird. Oh, boo. Go for boo. the Finch. Um, no, I'm in that case, you're going to go for the Mockingbird. I'm going to go for Alfred Russell Wallace because without him, Darwin may never have published it. He may have just tootled around with it um, written papers about barnacles, worn his top hat, and done nothing about it. So without that little bit of, you know, a nudge coming from Alfred Russell Wallace and whoever it was that said, oi, you know, come on, put pen to paper, um, we may never have known. We, it may never have come out in the same way. So that's what I'm going for. <laughs> there we go. Well, we'll see what the public thinks. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Emily. <laughs> I'll I, definitely I be putting a few photos up of mockingbirds on our Instagram this week. <laughs> what were you going to say, Aaron? I like that moment. I like that moment coming into the office while he's there with his with his barnacle monograph open in the office, <laughs> and Charles Lyle's going, "Hey, this Wallace chap in Sarawak has done something. <laughs> Here's the letter." <laughs> Yeah, get on with it. You see, endorsed by yeah, Dr. Shut Aaron up, Hansen. Aaron. There we can go. We, you I know, can you tell best. us why the Mockingbird is a very good choice? No, nah, Mockingbird's a rubbish choice. Um, that's the mechanism. Russell Wallace. That was the mechanism, Alex. That was the mechanism actually, behind everything. Is that what you just said, Aaron? That's the mechanism behind it. Here, by the way, this is an example of the very monographs that they would have been writing. This the the blue books. Oh my goodness. This one here. This 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 is Lyme Regis, by the way. Oh, I'm, so, I'm just going to show you that I've got. Can you take head. a photo of that and we'll put it on our Instagram so the the listeners can see that later, Aaron? Yeah. So have I. Do you want to take a picture of that later? Yeah. Yeah. Take send a photo. It send it to okay. Emily and she'll pop it out. Yeah. And and so because so, that's the monographs that we still do them. So there we go. So those are your choices for this week's uh, podcast pedestal. It's either the Mockingbird, you know, fine, whatever, but really Alfred Russell Wallace, who was the. <laughs> Lit, lit the touch paper uh, for the publication of the whole thing so there we go so you can vote on that um we'll probably put the polls up on sunday on our instagrams uh either at tourguide.alex or guide emily and it'll also be on our uh, ladies who london uh, yes. as well the wheel of destiny right it's your favorite time of the week emily dun 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 the, the weekend. Wheel no. of destiny. <laughs> yeah. destiny. Um, so, it's my pick next week, isn't it? It's your pick next week. Um, I, I have to say, there are a lot of places on this wheel that have not been touched yet by yeah. the arrow. Yeah. Um, where do you want to go? I know you've got a list. I've got a list. Um, so, yeah, I don't really mind. Well, I'm, I'm pretty happy with wherever it falls. So Okay. I've but... got a pretty kind of jazzy finger today, so it's going to be a, bit oh, of a big okay. spin. Fabulous. <laughs> okay, by process of natural selection. <laughs> oh. oh, goodness me. We've it landed in Bloomsbury. We haven't. Two weeks on the trot. Two weeks on the trot. How is that even possible? I have no idea, but there, there we is. go. Bloomsbury. Okay. Well, um, all right. Well, actually quite a good one because we were chatting to Aaron before we started recording the podcast and he reminded us that there is a film coming out this week on the history of the Sutton Who oh, treasure yes. hoard. Oh, so that's actually perfect because um, mm. the Sutton Who treasure hoard is on show in the British Museum, which is in Bloomsbury. So actually that's quite a good, I think let's go with that. Does that sound like a plan? Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Brilliant. So wow. next week okay. we're going to delve into that. So if you're then going to watch it, uh, what's it called, Aaron? Can you remember the name of it? It's called The Dig. The Dig. There we go. <laughs> the Dig. The Dig. So um, if anybody wants to watch that on Netflix, don't watch it till after you've heard the podcast next week. Yeah. And you'll be able to then watch it and ruin it by going, that's not accurate. That's not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Probably what will happen, isn't it? Fabulous. Well, that is it for this week. Um, Anything that either of you want to plug that you're doing? Aaron, is there anything, have you got anything coming up, virtual tours or anything that you'd like to tell everyone about? Yes, yeah, so I'm doing uh, virtual tours at the moment on Mary Anning, that lady, that fossil hunter, um, who pioneered the Jurassic world, which includes a little bit of Natural History Museum as well. I'm also doing regular um, virtual tours every Sunday, or alternating Sundays, on either the fantastic city of Bath, or 
ancient Britain. Oh. So going round and discovering the world of stone circles and Roman remains. Fantastic. And where can people find Brilliant. you? What's your, uh, what, what's the links to, to get to you? Uh, you can find me via my Instagram, which is Science Guide London. Science Guide. Science Guide Science London. Science Guide London. That's great. Brilliant. What about you, Emily? What have you got coming up? So I've got another Dark Side of London tour. So if anyone missed my last one, I've got one on the 8th of February. And actually before that, on the 2nd of February, I've got another street art virtual tour. Amazing. Um, yeah, so that's what's next for me. What about your lovely self? Uh, well, I'm still, uh, I've got the Tudor puzzle box, which is carrying on. I've got four bookings for it next weekend. So if you want to do it this weekend or in the week, get in there because uh, it's lots of going um i've also got a little survey that's up at the minute to see what people want to do for the next series of virtual tours so go and have a little look um and you can select uh, i've got eight options the top four will be the ones that i will do as the next series which i'm going to start in a, probably about 10 days or so so please go and do that because i really would like your feedback on what everyone would like to see uh, so there we go Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Aaron Hunter. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. And we will see everyone, well, you'll, you'll hear us again next week um, <laughs> for uh, the Sutton Who on Lady to London podcast. Brilliant. See you next week, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Bye.